Hello, Dr. Tim Jordan here. And if you're the kind of parent who wants to remain an influence in your daughter's life now, throughout the teen years and beyond, then I think you're in the right place. And I really appreciate you all dropping by here every couple of weeks for the, uh, these podcasts. The podcast is called Raising Daughters, and uh, we tackle different issues that, that uh, are geared towards girls today, raising girls today. And I'm going to go off the, the track a little bit today. I have a, a guest I'm going to interview. And we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different parenting things because he developed a really cool website. It's all about information for parents. Uh, his name is Matt Larson. And Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell me first, you're, you're a serial entrepreneur, if that's the right way of saying it. And you were a very successful businessman and a lot of different things. And then all of a sudden, you, you veered off the path and started doing education for parents. How, how did that happen? Sure. So we, you're right. I had, you know, run a number of software companies. I, I'm still currently the chairman of a couple software companies. Um, but along the way, my wife and I created a family foundation and we're really successful, you know, dealing with the issues that we were focused on. But a few years ago, uh, my co-founder of this organization and I were walking and asked a pretty simple question. We, we said, what's the, the most important thing that I could do to improve my long-term well-being and that of my family? And what was his number one thing? And it turned out neither one of us knew. And so we actually started a clinical trial where we hired participants and we hired a whole slew of experts. And the experts were things like psychologists and, and you know, doc, medical doctors and nutritionists and exercise people and you name it, we, we kind of had them in this group. And we would ask the experts to give us a set of questions that we were going to go ask for the participants. So they might, you know, give us 40 questions to go ask Sally. And so we would ask Sally all these questions uh, to try to figure out what was the most important thing that she could do for her long-term well-being. And we would take her answers back to the experts. They'd give us more questions for Sally. And we go back and forth until finally we seem like, well, we, we have the number one, you know, or number two or number three thing for Sally. Well, what was interesting was that all the participants had one of two things was always at the top of their list. And we were stunned because we didn't even, we weren't even aware of these. And so we ended up talking to a bunch of experts in, in these fields. And eventually somebody told us, they said, you guys just rediscovered what Harvard and the CDC discovered in the recent past. And it turns out these issues appear to be responsible for most of the problems in our society. So these two issues seem to account for the prison population. They seem to account for most of the people in, in, in the hospitals. Um, they account for drug and alcohol addiction, homelessness, mm -hmm. anger issues. Like it was stunning that there seemed to be, you know, just a couple of things that sort of made the biggest difference. And so we ended up then becoming a nonprofit institution, Well, we were already nonprofit, but, but we switched to a focusing on this key question, what things make the biggest difference to long-term well-being, particularly for children. And so we, we fund research in universities. We do our own research really are all around that topic. And we test everything you can imagine. Things like, you know, did parents really encourage their kids to eat their fruits and vegetables? Did they encourage kids to, you know, keep their room clean? Did they have them do chores? Um, you know, participate in athletics, everything like that. And what we found out is that almost none of them make any noticeable difference in long-term well-being. Um, these, they do, being a traveling club soccer team did not make the difference. Surprisingly, no. <laughs> Holy, wow. You're blowing my mind, the mind of all my listeners. <laughs> I'm sorry. I interrupted you, but go ahead. No, 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 <laughs> exactly. Um, so once we found out, you know, that these two issues seem to be it, and we continue to do research around all of that, these two categories of issues, um, we th then, you know, really focused on educating the public on that. And because we have tech backgrounds, um, it turns out to be successful in tech, you don't just need good software. You do need that, but you have to be really good at messaging. You have to be really good at communicating uh, to your customer base. And so we were able to sort of use our experience and our, the talent pool that we can tap into to really help translate these issues to the public. And so now we have... 
Uh, we have apps that are downloaded hundreds of thousands of times each month and hundreds of thousands of, you know, other users come in from other ways, you know, each month um, that are focusing on teaching parents um, the most important ish issues that will impact their child's long-term well-being and how to, how to take very concrete steps to, to influence that as well as um, what uh, people can do in their romantic relationships. Because it turns out the issues are exactly the same between parent-child relationships and let's say two-parent relationships. Uh, the skills are exactly the same. And so that's, that's basically, you know, what we turned into, we became focused on this one issue that if there is a, a root of society's ills, it's, it's these two issues. Um, okay. And so that's so really what guys we've on the edge of our seats. You've mentioned these two issues about 10 times. So what are the two, the two issues, the two factors, what are the two biggest ones that you found that Harvard found with their studies as well? Sure. So the first one has to do with, uh, with cortisol, um, this body chemical cortisol. Now cortisol is really helpful and needed and it's really important in our body in a lot of different ways, but in one particular way, and that is when we have elevated cortisol because we're nervous that something is going to happen that is going to cause our emotions to suddenly plummet in that particular case, that is the number one indicator of long-term well-being. So let me give an example of this. So let's say a parent is sarcastic or criticizes their child once a month. And that may only last two or three minutes, but the child is actually nervous that that could happen at any moment the entire month whenever they're around that parent. That elevated cortisol is what we're talking about. That's that, that number one predictor. And this is, happens all over the place. This, before I knew this, um, this was happening in my family. So I have one child who, my oldest child, who we really banter sort of, you know, teasing each other back and forth. And it really is sort of a way that, that we bond. Well, and so when I asked him about this, he said, no, you know, I kind of like it. It's, you know, that kind of thing. But when I asked one of my younger children the same question, I said, do you ever feel nervous that I'm going to say something like this? Uh, he said all the time. He said all the time, I'm, I'm nervous that you're going to tease me. And so for him, um, his cortisol was raised whenever he was around me and it broke my heart. I just, you know, I couldn't believe that, you know, that I had done this and that he was, he was nervous around me, but the science just hadn't gotten to a you know, point where, you know, we all knew this yet. But, but that's, that's one example. Now, it doesn't just have to be um, that you, you criticize or are sarcastic or, you know, obviously there's lots of other negative activities. It also could be this concept that a significant portion of children feel invisible. They feel unimportant. And so if you just ask them that question, hey, do you ever feel invisible? It's shocking that a significant number um, will say yes. And girls in particular seem to have a higher rate of feeling invisible or unimportant even in their own families. And in those cases, it can actually be that the parent does something that sort of reinforces that. So let's say a daughter comes home, she's excited about something that happened with her, you know, one of her friends, one of her friends got accepted onto a, a team at, at school. And the parent doesn't seem to notice, doesn't seem to care. Um, in that case, that reinforces to that daughter that I am invisible, I am unimportant, and will raise that cortisol level. And, and she's nervous that that's, that's going to happen, that she's going to tell a story and it's going to reinforce that, that she is actually unimportant or invisible. So there's a number of categories that fit into that. And if you ask your child, if you have that question and they say, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never felt that. You don't need to worry as much about it. But if they are in that category where they go, yeah, I do. I have felt invisible, you know, inside of our family. Then you want to be very aware of that. And, you know, there's things that we teach in our, you know, in our free apps that, um, that help with that. But, but that's the first category is cortisol because you're nervous that something's going to happen that's going to cause emotions to suddenly plummet. Any before questions about that before I move on to the yeah, second I was, one? I was going to ask you, what, what, if anything, what's the evolutionary advantage to cortisol? Because it, sure. I think, what, what I think I know is that our brains today have been the way they have been because in some way it helped us survive. I'm just curious about if your research has shown why that is true that if the cortisol goes up. 
It has, but let me, let me actually get to number the second thing okay. first, because then I can explain how both of those kind of work together for that. So maybe okay. I'll, if that's okay with you, I'll do that sure. first and then I'll answer your question. So the second one is another uh, hormone in our body called oxytocin. And oxytocin, again, is used for lots of things in our body, some things that are good for us, some things that are bad for us, and so on. But what we're talking about of as being this, this critical indicator of long-term well-being is oxytocin released inside of safe relationships. So a very simple example of this would be to ask a child, did they get a lot of hugs from a parent that they really felt safe with, that they had a close relationship with? If they say yes to that, it's certainly not all we would look at, but that would be that that's an indicator of that because uh, hugs give a lot of uh, give a lot of oxytocin. Now there's uh, there's lots of other again lots of other things that sort of fit into that. The most important of which is do they have a deep bond? So it turns out that uh, parent you know if a parent or a child have a deep bond is somewhat random in most families. The parent really doesn't understand why they have a deep bond with one child and not another because they haven't been taught the skills for how to purposefully build deep bonds with all of your children, which, which again, our free apps cover all that. Um, but that's the biggest thing that will increase um, this oxytocin is known is having a deep bond with one or ideally, you know, more than one parent. So those are the two categories and we can, you know, talk a lot more about things that influence those later, but let me get to your question now of, why do we think those two seem to be so important? And to understand that, you really have to go back to when we lived in tribes. And so in a tribe, um, particularly when you know, tribes were violent and would attack each other and, and so on, you have this concept that the, the, the more important you are to that tribe, the more valued you are to that tribe, you would get to sleep in the center of the camp. So um, you could, you know, look at, uh, you know, let's say a Native American tribe and the chief would sleep right in the middle and then be surrounded by the, the next highest ranking people. And then finally out on the edges is the lowest ranking people of the tribe, because if we're going to get attacked in the middle of the night, we don't want the chief yeah. you know, being killed or his family. Yeah. We want, you know, the lowest ranking members. Um, so it turns out, and it's the same thing in herd animals like cows. So, uh, a group of cows in the, at, you know, that are sleeping at night, the highest ranking cow is in the middle, the lowest ranking cows are out on the outer edges. And so it turns out that is, all that is really important to our safety because if we're low ranking, we obviously are less likely to pass on to our genes. We're less likely to be able to you know, have children and so on. So what happens is when any activity uh, happens that sort of raises our status uh, or uh, us being valued by the tribe, we'll get oxytocin. So if I said, you know, something very positive to a child of, man, I really like you, I think you're great, they're going to get oxytocin from that because it makes them feel like a more valued member of the family or, the, you know, what would be the tribe back then. So, so oxytocin gets released largely when you start getting things that would sort of pull you closer to the center of the tribe. Cortisol gets released the other way, right? So if somebody does something that basically pushes you out to the edge of the tribe, that will raise your cortisol. So for example, if I said to somebody over a video chat, for example, I don't like your hair. Well, in reality, that doesn't seem like that should make any difference whatsoever because I'm on a video chat with somebody maybe in another country who cares if I don't like their hair? It doesn't seem to make any difference, but the reality is that will cause a cortisol spike in them and they'll be nervous now every time they get on a video chat with, you know, a man perhaps, right? If, you know, if since, you know, since I'm a man talking about this. So, and the, the reason why it does that is what I'm basically telling them is, look, you're not as centered as you think you are. Um, you're really more out on the edge. And so we're, our brains are designed if we're out on the edge to, really focus on how do we get back in and to be really alarmed by that. Because if we weren't, if we said, you know what, I'm on the edge of the tribe, I don't really care. Then again, that ancestor isn't, isn't our ancestor because they didn't pass on their gene. So the only ancestors that exist are ones that cared very deeply about their, you know, their centerness in the tribe. And so we think those two, those two body chemicals essentially 
you know, sort of adapted to make us highly focused on that. And so even though it doesn't really matter as much anymore, right? We're in a society that's relatively safe. So those get released when we're really not in danger. We're certainly not in danger of dying. These are still the brains that we have. These are the brains that influence long-term well-being in modern society. So we kind of need to understand them and, you know, be able to adjust to them if we're going to, you know, significantly increase the people who have high well-being. I think, tell me if this is true, uh, it wasn't a bad thing that the cortisol goes up. It's not a bad thing when our amygdalas get triggered and there's anxiety. It's a warning system. And the people who probably heeded the warning that said, you might want to do something to include yourself better in the tribe or to increase your standing, those people had a better chance of surviving. People who ignored the alarms, ignored the, the warning, quote unquote, uh, probably didn't make it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, certainly all of these systems absolutely have their place, right? They have their, you know, the fight or flight system of a snake. And, you know, suddenly, you know, if you're in the middle of talking about, you know, some theoretical issue and a snake comes in, it takes over and gets you out, you know, very quickly, you know, gets you out of that situation. Uh, and there's times when we do need to be nervous. We need to be nervous if we're crossing a busy road. That's very appropriate. It's very healthy to have that. But it turns out if we're nervous all the time because we're worried that somebody in our tribe, which is most often means, you know, our family, um, doesn't think that we're in the center, right? Doesn't, doesn't embrace us, doesn't have close relationships with us. Those systems constantly being on alert are not good, right? I mean, in a way they're good in that, that we'll keep trying to improve our, our yeah. closeness. So in that sense, they're still good. Um, but we just know that if the kids can't get it, right, or they can't get into the center of the tribe because the parents don't know how to build deep bonds with them, they don't understand the, the science of a lot of, you know, the, the things that we cover on our app, then that becomes, that absolutely is a huge negative for their long-term well-being. Almost every girl that I work with in my counseling practice, retreats, camps, all that, almost all of them ruminate. They uh, assume worst case, they overthink, overanalyze, they go from a little trigger to um, this state of nobody likes me, I'm a loner, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to have a job because I failed the quiz this morning. You know, they, they ruminate a lot. So what does is, what is your research say and what do your, uh, your videos uh, teach parents about how to help, how to intercede with that? Sure. So the most important element of rumination is that they often are related to unprocessed hurtful experiences. So when we have something, like most of us can think back to middle school or high school where somebody maybe said something mean to us. And that then we kind of get triggered if we're in similar situations, we might have a flashback to that situation. But over the years, it can still be painful to think back at those situations. And if those flash back to us periodically, maybe once a year or something, and we still get a flood of negative emotions, that is what we call an unprocessed hurtful experience. And those are things that we will have ruminated over um, that are important um, and have serious you know, negative consequences over time. And so what happens when we have a, a hurtful experience is that we, it creates a set of brain connections. And let's say it creates a million brain connections. And if and those those brain connections actually make additional connections over to these emotion centers of our brain. So let's say it was an embarrassing situation. So it will make that 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 million those million brain connections that help us remember this embarrassing moment then have connections over to the embarrassment center. If we don't process that, if for example a child doesn't have a parent that is trained in how to help them process that they will ruminate on that situation and that those 1 million connections will turn into 2 million, which will turn into 3 million, which will turn into 50 million. All of those connections have connect, have those other connections to the embarrassment center. And so it will spin on itself and it will be harder and harder to process that later, the longer it goes. And it turns out the more of those that we have, the more unprocessed hurtful experiences that we have, the more we're controlled by them, they're sort of the puppet master of our lives. It's shocking how many, what percentage of our experiences are controlled by this puppet master of our unprocessed hurtful experiences. And 
They affect what careers we get into, what relationships we have, if we have children, how we treat those children. It's really quite shocking. Um, and so, it, but, but what we know is, is rumination isn't good. So if you have a, a hurtful experience, it's ideally you get it processed, which again, you know, we cover all that in, uh, in our app and teach how to do that in the app. But when you ruminate, you're just making more brain connections to those negative emotion centers and you're making it worse. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to think, oh, that person did that to me. And boy, I'd sure love to tell them off. And I would tell them this and I would do this. And the more you're doing that, the more you're actually creating more negative future emotions uh, in yourself. So it's really important to, for yourself to, to get those, those hurtful experience processed. And if you're an adult, that might mean therapy. Um, and it's, it's really important to help your kids because if you can take that situation, help them process it, it, you know, it may have no impact on their long-term well-being. They may rarely ever think about that again. I'm going to have you at the end talk about your app because it's, really, it's a great place for parents to get information. It's free. Um, so I'm, I'm going to hold off just so we can talk a little bit more if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. Talk, talk for a few minutes about um, the reward center in our brain, the, the role of dopamine uh, and all of that and kids doing risky things and being impulsive when they're teenagers and uh, not being able to turn off their phone, not just teenagers, by the way, not being able to turn off their phone or not, not being able to turn off their, so, their screens. Talk about that for a minute because that's, that's a big part of what I noticed in your, in your, uh, in your app. Sure. So when it's, it's important that we don't think of happiness as a single thing, but that instead we think of it as the different types of chemicals that basically get released in our body. And when we realize that happiness is very different things and that some forms of happiness are really good for us and some forms of happiness aren't, it allows us to have a much better control you know, over our behavior and, and improve our long-term well-being. So the concept of telling somebody, try to make yourself happier is a fundamentally flawed, a very difficult approach. I'm sorry, hang on one second. Okay. See, so you can't stop, you can't not look at it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> caught. Well, he's got to try to turn the ringer off. Yeah. Um, you want me to just, how about I'll just take that from the top? No, you're fine. You're, just keep, you're great. Okay. That's okay. My, my so, listeners are very, very easy going. <laughs> okay. All right. Great. So with, um, with dopamine, well, so, so we have these different types and if we just tell somebody to be happy, try to make themselves happy, it's a, it's a miserable failure because they, they optimize the wrong chemicals. That's essentially what, what happens in their brain. And so the most common one that we try to improve uh, is dopamine. When we try to make ourselves happy, we try to go increase dopamine. So we say, I'm having a bad day, I'm gonna go you know, binge watch uh, Netflix, or I'm gonna go eat ice cream, or I'm gonna use drugs or alcohol. All of those give uh, dopamine. The problem is dopamine goes away very quickly. So it's like trying to fill up a, a leaky bucket with water. You can keep pouring water in and it's gonna keep draining out. And so when you try to make yourself happy with that, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't increase long-term well-being. And it, the more you do that, the more you decrease the long-term well-being because you're not spending time on the other chemicals that actually do in, improve long-term well-being. I, you know, so, I've, read, I've read too that the, when dopamine, dopamine when it hits the, the pleasure centers, is does make us feel better for a short period of time. But a lot of it goes to our reward system, which doesn't make you feel happy and satisfied and content. It makes you want. It makes you seek. It makes you crave. So it actually, that's why it's never enough. You had have more right. ice cream, more potato chips, more gambling, more whatever. That's right. Yeah, you, you see a, an interesting post on social media and you just want another one. And it needs to be even more interesting or you kind of get <laughs> disappointed. Yeah, it absolutely is this, you know, addictive, uh, potentially addictive uh, thing that, of course, is, you know, fine in some moderation. Right? We get dopamine for all sorts of things. And it, it, it's, it's really important as a short-term reward system because it, it encourages us to do all the, the little things that we have to do. We get a little dopamine hit when we, you know, when we take a shower, when we get dressed, when you know, we do all of these little things that if we weren't getting those, we would 
basically sit around and do nothing. So it is really effective to get us to do things, but it, it is designed to go away very quickly. For example, I get a dopamine hit out of taking a shower and feeling clean. If that stayed, then I wouldn't take any more showers. I'd go years without taking a shower because I would still have that same feel-good feeling. In fact, you'll see that in um, you know people who have, let's say, a heroin addiction, where they're getting massive amounts of dopamine without doing things like taking showers, and they don't need to take showers, right? They're, because of that, it's like that that hit that I would get from that is so tiny. I, I'm getting it automatically, anyways, when I'm you know using this drug. So that's why you'll see that they're not motivated by the short term hits. And, so and your primitive and your primitive. Primi I'm sorry, I interrupt you. And your no. your primitive brain is saying, you better take the shower now because there may not be water tomorrow. So you see that bush of, of blackberries? You better eat those now because, because they not, may not be there tomorrow. And if they're not there tomorrow, you may not be able to eat for a week. Right, right. You're right. So dopamine, we call that the distraction chemical because hmm. usually we go to that when we're trying to be happy and it, it's, it's basically a waste of time. Now it can be okay and very, you know, and again, it's not a horrible thing to do. We all, you know, we'll go watch a sh an interesting show and or we'll do some social media scrolling, but largely it is a, you know, it's a distraction. It, it keeps us from being happy. Uh, it's, it's really bad when it distracts us from oxytocin. So let's say you have a choice. You have a choice between watching a Netflix show that is going to be really interesting to you, but not interesting to your partner at all. Mm -hmm. Or you can watch a show that's somewhat interesting to you and somewhat interesting to your partner. Well, when you watch that together, particularly if you do things like, you know, if you're up against each other on the couch while you're watching it, or you're holding hands while you're watching it. But even if you don't do those things, you're going to get all sorts of oxytocin because you're doing this thing together. Now, it won't give you as much of a hit because oxytocin is the long-term, what we call the long-term happiness chemical. So that will increase your long-term happiness, but it won't be as interesting a show to watch, right? You won't feel quite the high as if you go and watch the show that just you're really excited about. But when you do that, when you watch the show by yourself that only you care about, you're, you're robbing yourself of that oxytocin situation. Or if you decide to stay home, watch an interesting TV show instead of going out with some friends or something, you're robbing yourself of the long-term happiness chemical. That will eventually catch up to you. Um, it, you know, but it won't be today. It, it, you know, it takes time. It's sort of like smoking. Like you can smoke today for your first time and you, you won't notice any you know, negative effect, but you keep doing that over time. It, you know, it'll have obviously some negative effects. So I'm, I think it's one of the tough things is, is for people to sort of break that cycle because they're so used to reaching for novelty for the, you know, the next picture or the next uh, email or the next text or the next whatever. And they're so used to getting that hit that, that again, doesn't really, doesn't really make them happy or content. It just makes them want more. But it's, I think most people, number one, aren't aware of that they're in the middle of that cycle. And number two, they don't know how to get out of it. That's right. And they're just trying to make themselves happy. And so they just do what they have always done and try to make themselves happy, even though it doesn't seem to work in the long term. It seems to work great in the short term, right? If I uh, use drugs or watch some great TV show, I, it certainly does seem to help in the short term. But, uh, but we need to understand, you know, that uh, those, those things in the long term. Uh, serotonin is another one where people will choose. So serotonin, you can think of as, as, the accomplishment uh, chemical. That's how I kind of think of it. So if let's say you just watch TV all day uh, versus you go out and tend to the garden or you clean up the kitchen or you work on this home improvement project, those things like working on the garden, the home improvement project, you'll get serotonin out of that. You'll get this sense of accomplishment. And it turns out we need, we need a certain amount of that. So that's why, you, you know, people think about, you know, getting rich, sitting on a beach and doing nothing. You can't actually be happy doing that. You're not getting enough serotonin, enough uh, accomplishment uh, chemical, but it'll be the same thing where people will have a choice between dopamine or serotonin and they'll say, I'm not doing the dishes. I would rather watch my show. When in reality, it actually might make you have a better day to almost sort of flipping it around of trying to tell your spouse, no, 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 let me do the dishes because I want the serotonin hit. <laughs> like you really need, it yeah. turns out that, you know, you really need enough of that 
And if you're not getting that, it seems like you'd rather just watch TV, you know, all day, but you really won't. It, you'll have a rougher day because of that, because you're not getting enough of that sense of accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. Chemically, I, I always encourage girls who are anxious or depressed. I encourage them to find things that they like to do, love to do, that they're passionate about, whether it's playing guitar or painting or whatever, and you know, pour themselves into that because I, I guess maybe that's when their serotonin level goes up and then they feel better. That's uh, right. Better than, better than they, being high or vaping or whatever, you know. That's right. When they learn, you know, they master a new song on the guitar, they're getting serotonin. They get this feeling of like, I can really relax now because I've accomplished something. That's it. it really, it kind of comes after the accomplishment where you feel like I've really earned the right to sort of now really relax because I've done something of value. And, you know, again, the value thing could be wiping the counter down in your kitchen and having a clean counter versus a dirty one. It doesn't have to be um, a massive accomplishment. You don't have to go out and start a company. It's just these that you, 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 it's usually it's, it's ideally if you can see something like, I think, you know, gardening has been found to have to increase lifespans pretty significantly. And one theory for that is that you can visually see a lot of what you've done. You can go trim a bush and the bush looks a lot better after you've trimmed it. And you're getting this, you know, the serotonin from that of like, wow, this looks a lot better than, you know, when I started or you grow a garden and you see all of these plants, you know, that from a garden that was just soil, not that long ago, you get this sense of accomplishment, which again, served our ancestors really well, right? If, if they weren't motivated to go out and accomplish something today, then they, you know, they weren't going to go hunt the animal. They weren't going to go, you know, plant the, the crops and so on. So uh, that's still the brain that we have. So even though we might be able to say, well, you know, I don't have to do those. It, I don't need the money, let's say, uh, to, to go, you know, work on a Saturday or something. I'm just going to take Saturday off. Our brains still need some sense of accomplishment. It doesn't have to be every day. Some days it's perfectly fine to, you know, take off completely. But you, you do need enough of that. And, and uh, teen girls probably in some ways, let's say in the summer in particular, might be tempted to just, you know, watch TV all day or do something like that as, you know, instead of spending time with friends or accomplishing something, like you said, learning a, a new song on the guitar. But if they, if they do just dopamine activities and don't get those other necessary chemicals, they, they will start having a, a difficult time. I think that's that's one of the reasons why this COVID thing has caused more anxiety and depression in the girls I'm seeing is because they they can't go to school. They they you know they're not seeing their friends. They're not connecting like they're used to. They can't do their activities. They can't play sports. I mean, it's slowly getting better, but they've spent the last whatever it's been six seven months not having as many opportunities to increase their their uh, oxytocin and their serotonin. And they've been mostly doing dopamine kind of activities. That is exactly right. And just to add on to that, because, you know, we're more cooped up in our houses, right? We're less likely to go out because of the risk of catching COVID. Um, there's, there often can be more tension in the house. And so their cortisol levels are raised because, you know, they're getting irritated with their, their siblings or their parents or their cortisol levels are, are raised because they're nervous their parents are going to fight more. And so, you're absolutely right that, you know, that COVID is exacerbating, you know, both all, basically all of these chemicals, which makes it even more important for, you know, parents to, to learn about this stuff and master it. But the good news is that because children's mental health in a lot of cases is declining uh, during this process, it's getting parents to pay attention. It's getting parents to say, I, I need to learn something about child you know, mental health and make sure they're doing okay. And they're learning the foundations for how not just to help their child during COVID, but how to help them the rest of their life, the, the, how to help them have a deep bond with their child and how to help improve their child's long-term well-being. So for the parents who, who do that, who take the, this time to, to really go and learn you know, how to help their child it'll actually be a good thing that this will turn out to be a, a very important turning point in their child's life. I've read that when you're trying to break that dopamine cycle kind of sort of um, that when you see the piece of chocolate cake or your phone is sitting there in front of you and 
you know, you see it or hear, hear the little buzz that our brain locks into that kind of short-term reward system thing, like I want it now. But if you, if you put it out of sight, even for like as little as 10 minutes, like put the cake in the refrigerator or put your phone in another room, i.e. like teenagers at nighttime when they're going to bed, that once you, 10 minutes goes by, you haven't seen it, that your brain starts to shift back into the longer term thinking like, you know, I really don't need that cake. I could probably do without that. But in the moment when you see it, your brain's all like, I got to have it now. Interesting. You know, I didn't know that. So we don't do a lot of research about how to break those dopamine addictions, right? How to break being addicted to social media where you just waste hours scrolling. And people will even report that it really frustrates them that I, I, I don't like doing this. Like I want to just turn, you know, set it down and be done with it. Or I don't want to watch another show on, you know, on Netflix. Um, and we're, that hasn't really been our area of like, how do you break those dopamine you know, addictions? But that's a really interesting point. I'll, I'll probably, uh, you know, pass that on, look more into that. But I, and I'd be, you know, really interested to know, like, what are the best dopamine addiction, uh, you know, breaking ways to do it? Are there, are there five others? Um, you'll have to let me know if you end up having a guest on who, who ever talks about that. Okay. Do you have a moment to, to cover one more topic quickly before I have you describe your app and your uh, human improvement project? Is that okay? Sure, of course. Yeah. Just talk, if you could, for a few minutes about empathy and the development of empathy and how that fits into all this. Sure. So empathy is, might be the, you know, one of the most important things as humans that we can master. Because when we talk about those two chemicals, um, empathy has an enormous impact on both of them. And so if, if, for example, I understand the feelings that my child has in general. I, I help them process their emotions when they have difficult times. I become very in tune with their feelings. Well, if I'm about to say something, which we all do, we all make these mistakes at times, but when, if I'm about to say something that is going to emotionally ambush them, that's going to make their emotions suddenly plummet and make them nervous around me, because I'm in tune with their feelings, I'll actually start feeling that negative feeling right before it comes out. So that's what empathy sort of does. It allows me to be in tune with their feelings. So I will stop myself and go, whoa, I can't believe I almost said that that really could have hurt their feelings. Um, and so it stops me from spiking their cortisol levels. So that's one key element of it. The other key element on the oxytocin side, the whole deep bonds side is deep bonds essentially are built uh, in the, the, the moments that matter most are the upset moments or when our child is upset, if we handle that correctly and it, and how to handle that correctly is teaching all of these empathy skills. It's teaching how to recognize their emotions, how to name their emotions, how to you know, do all that in a way that helps them calm down and builds our bond with them. So empathy appears to be this, this really, really important skill that is really the haves and the have-nots. So when we, when we talk about that phrase, the haves and the have-nots, people think about wealth. They think about financial wealth. And it turns out that is not at all true. There are very wealthy families that are very similar. Wealthy families aren't that different than other families in that the children in the, those wealthy families have some kids who have those, those levels are really out of whack and other kids where they're, they're right the way they need to be and often that has to do with empathy. So the, the empathy levels that different parents have, now some of it has to do with how they interact with kids. They don't realize they're interacting differently with one child versus the other. But the haves and the have nots are, do you have a parent who really has empathy or not? And you know, do they know how to handle that correctly? So I think in the future, we'll go away from finances because finances have very little do, to do with well-being, very little to do. It's a, it, you know, we chase that all the time. I think thinking that that's really what is going to make our, us happy and our family happy, but it has very little to do with of well-being. Empathy is a much better guidepost saying how empathetic are my children's parents, meaning myself and you know, my wife in, in my case, it's a much better guidepost than, than finance. You know, one of the things, right, I talked to lots of girls counseling with her and camps, retreats and all. One of the things that hurts the most for them 
is that their parents don't get them, don't mm-hmm. see them, don't understand them. They're different. They think different. Uh, some of it is just the parents' old baggage, you know, from their past. And some of it's just, they're just different people, but that's one of the most hurtful things. That's me. That goes back to the invisibility kind of thing before, like their parents just don't understand me. They don't see me. That's right. And that's, the, the main reason why that's the case is the parents do not know how to handle the upset moments. When you get trained how to do that, how to you know, recognize, because it's really important that, that parents are, have a, a high percentage of the time that when that child is upset, the parent notices and cares and then knows how to properly handle that particular situation. If you do that, then eventually your child literally might say these exact words, dad, you get me, mom, you get me. It's shocking that I remember the first time one of my kids said that I I, I sort of, I knew that that was the goal, but I was surprised that they actually said those actual words. But it's again, it's the skills of how you handle those upset moments that most matters. That is the bulk of what matters. This may be beyond your, your interest or your research, but one of the things I find that most gets in the way of parents doing what you're saying has nothing to do with they don't know how or they don't have the tool. It's more about what they're bringing to parenting, their own past histories, their own unprocessed, uh, I can't remember what you called, unprocessed, hurtful experiences. hurtful experiences. Because if they haven't processed through their childhood stuff, then that gets triggered. And then that just, uh, there's a, a phrase I learned in my training a thousand years ago called ghosts in the nursery. Have you ever heard that expression? No, I haven't. Things that happen in, in a parent's past mm-hmm. that they don't resolve, like those, what you're talking about, those unresolved negative experiences. But they, that those things get triggered when you have your own kids and they can haunt your parenting. That's the ghost part of it. Meaning it's, you don't, it's hard to see through it and parent in, in an effective way because you're bringing your stuff into it. That's right. Now, one of the things that we learned early on is when we would talk about that to parents, we would say, you have these big unprocessed hurtful experiences in your past. We think you should process them. Is that they, it overwhelmed them. Those, to process those, and particularly if you don't know how to do that, um, is actually a pretty painful experience. And some people just cannot handle that. And so they will turn away. Mm. So what we found out is actually more effective is just teaching them to help the, their romantic partner and their kids process much smaller experiences. So the fact that the, you know, the child you know, had a friend not sit with them at lunch, those types of things. As the whole family learns how to help each other process these, let's say, relatively simple, not a big deal situations, they start developing this trust where they start then going, taking the medium issues. So they'll say, you know what? to my partner or maybe even, you know, with my kids, I can talk about, you know, I had this hard thing that happened to me in the past and the, then my family becomes a safe place to, to process these slightly harder ones. And then if that kind of goes okay and I feel like, Hey, my, let's say my spouse handled that safely, then I might go a little deeper and go a little deeper. So what ends up happening is they end up, processing a lot of these over time in their family when they start having safe things or they start realizing, you know what, I, I, am I able to process the ones that aren't quite as hard? Maybe I'll go to a therapist for some other ones, but they have some success under the belt. They know they can do it. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why we really focus on learning that skill, helping your kids, not just to help your kids with it, but it actually will help the parent slowly start working at, you know, learning how to healthy, you know, how to process their own hurtful experiences in, uh, you know, in a healthy way. That's really quite simple and, and not very painful. It reminds me, I did some training like 30 something years ago with a guy named Harville Hendricks. He wrote a couple of best-selling books, Getting the Love You Want. Uh, he got on Oprah like 30 times. She loved him. He, he ran these weekend retreats for couples. My wife and I went on one Gosh, back in the early 90s, I think. But he called it imago therapy, meaning we tend to marry the image of, of something in our past, one of our mom or dad or something. And unconsciously, we, we do that so that if we can resolve some issues with our spouse that get triggered, that somehow allows the old wounds to heal. 
So it's like our unconscious way of healing old wounds through like what you're talking about. Like if you can sort of manage things with your children and or with your spouse, smaller things and build that somehow some of the old wounds can be healed. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since I read his book, but one of the things that, that, that I remember um, that was interesting from, from his process is that he would, if I, if I recall correctly, he would have the, the spouses basically, like let's say lay in bed and face each other and talk about some of their past hurtful experiences, which is basically a way of processing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get to that level, though, you you really need to have first practiced on much easier things. It would be like, I'm in Colorado and there's, you know, we have a bunch of ski resorts here. And so a really easy ski resort is a green. And then the very, let's say the really hard ones are double black diamonds. Well, you don't want to start skiing on double black diamonds. And one risk of, of if you and your partner start going too deep into some of the hardest stuff that you've dealt with is your partner may not know how to handle that well. And that actually could be turn out to be a painful experience if they don't handle it well. So, but if you start with the light stuff, if you start with, you know, you helping your partner process uh, just a bad day at work or, you know, a bad day, you know, at the grocery store where, you know, the cashier, you know, gave you the wrong change or something that's sort of like skiing first on the, the easy slope, the bunny slopes, and then working your way up and you'll naturally work your way up and then you'll eventually hit those, you know, double black diamonds. But I think, you know, he, his research, which was really, I think mostly before we had all this brain scanning technology in that, you know, and particularly in that area, I remember thinking that that's right on the money. This, this concept of, you know, that you have the, the ghosts of the nursery, which I like that phrase and that at some point it's definitely beneficial if you can figure out a way to, to process those. So tell us uh, about the Human Improvement Project and also about the Happy Child app that I want our, our parents listening in to know about these resources. Sure. So the Human Improvement Project is just the, you know, just the, the name of this project that is focusing on this issue of what makes the, the, most, uh, the biggest difference in long-term well-being. The Happy Child app, um, we also have a, a similar app called In Love While Parenting, both of those apps are very highly rated. They're, they fluctuate between a 4.9 and a 5.0 rating. Um, they're downloaded hundreds of thousands of times a month, and uh, they're used by, by parents in over 165 countries. And they're completely free. They have no advertisements. This was all put together by uh, a group of people, almost all working for free. Myself and my co-founder both work completely for free. Most of our experts work completely for free. And, and we all do this because we realize how significant these issues are to long-term well-being and that we have an opportunity to massively change uh, not just a, a huge number of, of children alive right now, but their children and their grandchildren and so on. So what the app does is it teaches these things that are that appear to make the biggest difference uh, in a way that that then causes significant behavioral changes in parents. So we survey parents after they've been using it. We do studies. And what we find is that there's very significant behavioral change from from parents that are, again, improving the parents' well-being and, of course, the the child's well-being. So um, we strongly encourage uh, parents to do that. We believe that in the, you know, let's say in a five or 10 year period, a, a parent learning these skills is, is perhaps, or maybe even likely the most important thing they could do for their child. It's way more important than taking them to Disney world. Uh, it's, it's way more important than getting them onto a particular sports team. What? So wait, wait, that's the second time you've said that. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my pet peeves. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm, you know, I, I get the whole teenage, uh, you know, girl, uh, thing I've got a teenage daughter of my own, so I'm sort of well aware that you know that that's kind of a common uh, a common thing. But yeah, so we you know that that's we would love to have you know all the parents that we can get do that because we know it just makes such a big difference. So it's the Happy Child app. I mm-hmm. I got I got that one, and it's very user friendly. There's all these nice little short but sweet videos that are done very well. And the other one you called uh, in love, uh, in love well, well parenting. Well parent, I didn't know about that one. It's, it's basically the same app, but we had uh, p- people were downloading our parenting app and they said, 
you know what, if you made this about romantic relationships, you'd get a lot more users. And it turned out they were right. So it's the same content as the happy child, but it gets six times as many downloads because it turns out parents feel like they give so much on the parenting side that they, they only, you know, they only are willing to do so much more. But when you explain to them that this will make a huge difference in their romantic relationship, Turns out they're a lot more willing to, to do that, even though the content is, is the same. The, the skills are exactly the same that you need for your romantic relationship as, as the one with your, with, with your kids. So it's, it's, the apps are both basically the same. They just pull in different users looking for different things. I'm very grateful, not only that you came on the show, but also that you're, you've put together all this research and all this knowledge for free. Is the best place for parents to get on the apps or is it through the Human Improvement Project website or because the apps have these daily tips that turn out to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. They really reinforce in the, that person's family, the, the key elements. And so you'll, in a lot of our reviews, uh, you'll see people talk about how, how important those are. So the app really is the, the, the best uh, method. Great. Thank you so much for coming on Raising Daughters. We really appreciate everything you offered and all that you're doing for, for kids and uh, parents and families. Well, well, thank you for having me on. And likewise, thank you for doing all the, the great work that you're doing to help, um, help girls all over, the, all over the U.S. Thank you all for listening in. Uh, look for that app, the Happy Child app and the In Love Well Parenting app. Um, lots of great information. And it's, it's done in really nice little short but sweet packages, which I think is important. A lot of parents complain like, I don't have time to read a book. I don't have time to watch a whole video. But these, these, are, these are in nice packages. It's easy to understand. It's very well done, uh, very professional and very well done. I'll be back here in two weeks with another podcast. I appreciate you stopping by every two weeks for these. If you like the information, please pass it on to your friends. I will see you all back here in two weeks. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, oh.